Last month, at the behest of the Vulcan ambassador, I opened a dialogue with Gorkin, Chancellor of the Klingon High Council. He proposes to commence negotiations at once. Negotiations for what? The dismantling of our space stations and star bases along the neutral zone. An end to almost 70 years of unremitting hostility, which the Klingons can no longer afford. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 32 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today's episode is called The Klingon Glasnost. <laughs> Essentially a look at Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, through the lens of the Cold War metaphor. To talk about this, I've invited a political sciences expert. You know her as Elise from Ohatmu or not, uh, probably because that's her actual name. <laughs> Yes. Welcome, welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you. Say, thank you for having me. I'm not impressed that it's an uneven. It's an even number, but I can get over it. Welcome to episode 33. Yay! 32.3. <laughs> so, what is your expertise uh, in political sciences? Why are we talking about the Cold War today? <laughs> well, I uh, have a master's in theory of international relations, which is essentially the study of relations. Outside of the national sphere. The foreign office. <laughs> I mean, it, it started off being in the foreign office, and especially during the Cold War, it was a lot about states, nation states, and how they behaved. But in the later years, the, the, the science has gone much further into who actually are the actors of international relations, and who has power in international relations, and who has incidence on what happens in international relations. And uh, one of the the main criticism of classical theory was that if we only focus on countries, uh, we lose some of the factors that might, you know, affect the so reality. The of individual China. has an effect. It might either the individual, the network, the technology, mm. civil society, money, economic businesses. They, there's like there's a bunch of uh, currents that kind of say, okay, well that was nice, but there's something else to look at. So that was like the socialism first started in international relations theory as, okay, but have you thought about the economic aspect of this whole thing, guys? And then it kind of goes up until postmodernism, which looks at languages and the way we conceive things, which is kind of where I sit in. Yeah, your interest. thesis was about George W. Bush's speeches? Yes, it, right? wa it was, ba it was, um, it had a beautiful title. It was like, <laughs> Disorder, terror, and barbarism, or something. Barbarians. Disorder, terror, and barbarians. And then there's like a semicolon and the actual title. So <laughs> that's how you know you've got a good thesis in political science. You have a, like, like a catchy title, then a semicolon, and then you, you know what you're actually going to talk about. But no, it, it, I studied the speeches from George Bush post September 11th. 
and how the language and imagery used in those speeches served to uh, justify the invasion of Iraq. Okay. Or the intervention in Iraq, I should say, because... That was the language used? That was the language used then, yes. And um, I also used some of the first Gulf War um, comparative studies and anyways. But there's a lot of people, whenever I spoke about my thesis, a bunch of people were like, do you think it's an inside job? It doesn't matter. I'm studying what effect... The result. Yeah, and how they chose to perceive it. So perceiving it as an act of war, which is something that comes back in the movie, is a decision that you're making. And it implies different things in international relations. All right. Well, that's post-Cold War on, yes. that, on that, that topic. But you do know about the Cold War. I do. You've studied American history, politics um, enough that we trust you with this. <laughs> But do we trust you with Star Trek? <laughs> I, I don't think you should. No, you probably should. I, I feel like I handed you the movie and that was like your first real experience with Star Trek. It was my first um, attentive experience with Star Trek. Because my parents used to watch uh, a lot of Star Trek. I think they watched Voyager and Next Generation. I think. I don't remember. If you, if you showed me the, the uniforms and like the faces, I might be like, oh, I know that guy. You know, the one with the... Headband on his eyes? Yeah, yeah. Jordy from Next Gen. There you go. They watch Next Gen. And I do remember Captain Janeway. So, yeah, they watch Next Generation. But a lot of the times, whenever they'd be watching, I couldn't stay in the room because scary monsters. And <laughs> so it's kinda, I kind of got a, a, a perception of Star Trek that it wasn't for me. Okay. So I haven't pursued it. But I did, I did enjoy the movie. Okay. Well. Most of it. Because there are some monsters in it. There are. There's also dis- sex with monsters, which is not cool. And dismemberment. Dismemberment. Well, oh, yeah, wow. the, okay. Oh, well. I thought maybe the gore. The gore is made less bad by the fact that it's like fuchsia play-doh or like right. fuchsia goo. That was actually because it was too gory. Really? So they made the blood pink or like Pepto-Bismol. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I thought it was yeah. kind of a... Because I saw it as... A way of making the other seem less human. Sure, sure. And it works like on that level. Like even more different. Yeah, it works on that level. But originally, it wasn't clear that Klingon blood... I'm sure you know, Next Gen was already going for like two, three years right. prior to the movie. Uh, this, was, this was the goodbye movie of the old cast because the new show was a hit mm-hmm. and moving forward. And I, I, I'm pretty sure Worf at least bites his lip at one point in a fight or something and it's red. Okay. Uh, so this was the, this, they decided, well, Klingons have pink blood from then on, I think it's because the scene was so extreme. Oh, uh, okay. With, you know, blood flying around and, and, <laughs> and zero G. So you were okay with, with all of that. Yeah, it was fine. Okay. Well, the, the quiz, you've already answered the first question. What does, you know, what is Star Trek to you? So do you have a favorite iteration of the show, even though you weren't watching it? No. Okay. <laughs> I have zero opinion. Like, I, I, I just can't, I enjoyed the movie, but I don't know if, I'd enjoy another movie more because I never bothered looking. You have a favorite character? Probably just from this movie. <laughs> from this movie, I think the one I enjoyed the most was Spock. And I know more about his history just because of like popular culture. So I think he's the one I... I enjoyed his presence. I thought Kirk was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, do you have a favorite alien species from the show, from what you've seen? No! Okay. <laughs> these are These are the questions. You've answered them all. Okay, good. Uh, so let's just get into the... Okay. <laughs> so Klingons. Yes. The reason we're talking about the Cold War and Klingons is Klingons, way back in the 60s when Star Trek started, the Klingons were obviously a standard for the communists. Mm-hmm. 
They had, sometimes they had names that sort of approached that. They had a look that was sort of Asian, so mm -hmm. perhaps more Chinese. I mean, this movie has a guy called Chang. Yeah. But still, they're supposed to be the communist bloc. Well, even their language. Like, their language is very devoid of vowels, which is typical of Slavic languages. Okay, well, that's interesting. So, yeah. so they were always supposed to be the Soviets. There was a Cold War. They weren't act actively fighting. There had been a war, but they weren't at war then. But there were a lot of shenanigans. There's mm -hmm. an episode that was all about the Vietnam War, right. where the Federation, the Klingons, do the, the same thing over a planet. So that's what they're supposed to be. But of course, late, early 90s, late mm -hmm. 80s, early 90s, when this movie was conceived, things are changing in the mm -hmm. Soviet Union. How does the film relate to that? From my perspective... Um a lot of what I've studied related to the political theory and the Cold War, it was kind of an anxious time, especially when the Soviet Union fell, because none of the theories that we use to explain international relations predicted that. Okay. Like, there was zero, and it kind of... No warning, no... No, there was, like, what? Wait, what? What do you mean? Like, they're dismantling. This makes no sense. And I actually have a... I had a colleague at university who was working... Who was about to... Um, hand in his thesis, his PhD thesis, when the Soviet Union fell. And he had to then make the decision of, am I going to hand it in as a historical piece of what was? Or am I going to work on it for another three, four years to make it relevant in the future? So that was, in, in terms of political science, it was a big moment of like, oh shit, guys. <laughs> Our models don't predict this. Like there's because essentially the 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 basis of um, the realism theory is that nation states are the main actors, and they define their interest in terms of power. So whatever they need to do to get more power, they will keep doing. It's unnatural for a nation state to give up power. It, basically, nothing predicted the end of the Cold War. There was an anxiety to it. Like, well, what 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 do we do now? You know, and who's the next enemy? Mm. And what, how is the way we've understood the world faulty up right. until now? Right. So there's that aspect. Because the, if we take it back to Star Trek, by this point, we're, mm -hmm. we've had two, three years of, of Worf on the bridge. Yes. In the same way that the original series had Chekhov on the bridge. Right. As if to say, Earth will one day be united. Right. And putting Worf on the bridge in the modern era was to say, we, we become friends with our enemies. Right. Not just on Earth, but out there. Uh, so we knew that the Klingons had to become more yeah. friendly. Let's not say super friendly, but <laughs> more friendly. Yeah. Um, but we didn't know how that happened. So the little clues that we get in the show in Next Gen are part of this film. Okay. But you know, basically we knew Kittimer Accords. We knew those words. Right. So now we're seeing it play out. But we still don't know why. You know, it's it seemed in Next Gen, which is like 100 years later, right. that... You know, what happened? What yeah. happened in between? Why, how could the Klingons stop being a warring enemy yeah. with us? And it's like that, that movie, Goodbye Lenin. This mother falls in a coma. Meanwhile, the Berlin Wall falls because she lives in East Berlin. And the doctors tell her children she can't have any more shock when she wakes up. So they try to keep up this facade that... That, they, that the wall that, hasn't fallen. Exactly. Yeah. In the movie, a moon of the Kronos yes. blows up. Praxis, and it's supposed to be like a uh, industrial facility, a weapons-making facility, it causes problems on the planet next to it. I yes. can't imagine. So I, so, there, I, so there's something 
yes. that happens in our own history that's well, like that. When I was watching it, I was sending you messages that mm -hmm. weren't necessarily to be used today. Just reactions. But yeah, just random reactions. Some were more silly than others. But my first official reaction was, wait, so it begins with Chernobyl? What do you... What? <laughs> okay. I guess this is not as subtle as I thought it would be. <laughs> I, I don't know if I ever knew or realized mm -hmm. that Chernobyl had something to do with the fall of the Soviet bloc. So how does that work? Well, um, the, the first clue that I had was that, that they didn't, the, the way they found out is they got emissions from the Praxis blowing up, which is exactly how the West found out about uh, Chernobyl. So the Institute in Sweden saw high radiation levels and they're like, yo, Soviets, what's up? And uh, the answer was, there's been an incident, but everything is under control and we're dealing with it. And the reason behind the accident is considered to be overlooked safety protocols and uh, over, like, trying to get too much energy out of it. Because they were still building another reactor when the, the Chernobyl reactor exploded. To me, I was just like, this is blatant. And what happened, so there was... Especially since the Klingons... Send the same, the same exactly. message. Exactly. The, the, the exact the... same message. We're fine. Just a small accident. And the people on the ship are like, dude, your your moon's gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is speaking for the high command. There has been an incident on Praxis. However, everything is under control. We have no need for assistance. Obey treaty stipulations and remain outside the neutral zone. This transmission ends now. An incident. Do we report this, sir? Are you kidding? And there were actually children in like Germany being told don't go outside because of the radiation levels. A building wall won't protect you from radiation levels, but it was like it, it was in the conscious of uh, Western Europe after it happened because they had detected the levels. But it took a while for them to allow experts from the West to go and help them in a way or assist them. But that is seen as one of the, like, like it procures collaboration in terms of decontamination efforts or containment efforts. So, so they used the science aspect of how are we going to make sure it doesn't blow up for the rest of the world to like kind of justify collaboration. And uh, it was also a very big precursor for the Glasnost, which is uh, the Gorbachev's, doctrine of being more open about things because they kind of had to be at that point like i don't know if i I'd, I'd have to revisit the history but i don't know how prominent it was or how you know accepted it was that glasnost was a necessity was happening before chernobyl where they were kind of like well we kind of need the west S suddenly help. yeah because that's what happens in the movie yeah the klingons had this disaster happen, mm -hmm. and now they're opening up doors. Because they have to. And I found it interesting because what happened with Chernobyl is with the, the decontamination efforts and containment efforts, they poured so much money into it. I think it's estimated to be like $18 billion, which was basically their entire budget at the time. They broke the bank trying to contain Chernobyl and killed a million people. So is the, well, the more open policy of the Soviet Union and eventual fall is that we needed help for decontamination, but now we need financial help. We need to get businesses in here. We need to, is, is that part of the? Probably. I'm pretty, like, I, I think some of it was. What's tough with the fall of the Soviet Union is that the culture of secrecy was so embedded in everyone. 
that it's hard to know for sure. It was hard to know for sure at the time what was actually going on. You know, and you see it in the the actual news show, uh, Chernobyl on HBO, Mm -hmm. how some people are saying, no, we need to be open about this. And other uh, party members still hold the view that it's the party above all else. And it's not about the people. It's about maintaining the party. So that culture was, you know, it had been around for about 70, 80 years. And in the movie, we do have that culture on both sides. Yes. On both sides of their Warhawks. Kind mm. of wanting to did uh, did Gorbachev have the, that pushback himself, like Gorkon in the in the film? I think so. Yeah, I'm, I'm... there wasn't a, an assassination attempt, but there was an attempted coup in '91, and it didn't it didn't work. Yeah, but of course, the, all those KGB guys don't want that that transparency. Well, I mean, it's job security at some point. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you're no longer being secret, I think I think it's a natural human thing and you see it in the movie as well where it's like well if we no longer you know have this driving force of staying on top of things protecting our lands what are we doing what's the point what's the purpose and there in political uh, science theory it comes in the theory of the other which is something that like really struck me as i was watching the movie which i mean it's obviously not subtle that dinner scene how they're they're and the Klingons are portrayed as the other in every possible way. Except um, they know Shakespeare. They know Shakespeare. But they and appropriate they, it. And they, they know what a toast is, which I find ridiculous that they don't know what cutlery is, but they know what a toast is. But anyway, that's just a detail. <laughs> but just the, the, the notion that you're, we tend to define ourselves by what we are not. So if we are not Soviets, if we are not Klingons, we're humans. And... In the dinner scenes, there's a moment where they mention, well, now we're going to have human rights for all. And there's kind of this like, well, human rights are good for humans, but like, it's yeah. not... Even the name is racist. Well, I actually, I actually did a project in my bachelor's on how human rights are a uh, Western concept and mm. do not apply to the rest of the world in the same way that we think it should or we assume it should. And it's also kind of a masculine concept. So that resonated with me because I was like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, I've, yeah. I've studied In- Inalienable. That. So yeah. all, even the words, especially because they are literal aliens. Yeah. Uh, but even that word is a pejorative mm-hmm. yeah. in science fiction mm-hmm. because we're talking about aliens and it means... Other. Outwardly. Not of us. Uh, and yet they do have the Shakespeare, which is yes. which is interesting. I think it's I think it's supposed to be a joke in a way that the, the original show had... Chekhov, the Russian, right. claiming that everything was a Russian invention. Okay. <laughs> he always It was like a, a character quirk where right. he would say, oh, you know, Scotch is actually Russian. Or you know, he would troll. I, I say troll, but I think he believed it. Mm-hmm. But he would troll other characters oh, about that, this. That was actually part of the narrative that was, you know, fed into Russians by the Soviet Union. So it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know how proudly they protected their culture? Mm-hmm. It was. It wasn't just about... Uh, building arms or... No. uh, It was, you know, Russian culture is the greatest culture. Mm -hmm. You know, they had bodyguards on composers and on Mm -hmm. to protect their culture. Right. It's the same here. Like the Klingons are saying, 
that Shakespeare is actually the original in the original Klingon, as if right. As it if. sounds better in the original Klingon. Yeah. So yeah. they're appropriating other cultures. They're mm. saying so they're doing the same thing that Chekhov used to do. But I think you have to if you're going to live in a state of war, of constant war, like the Cold War was. You need to find justifying reasons that the other is an enemy because many times during the Cold War, you'd have people saying, yeah, but like, they're not that bad guys or like working with them. We could get things done, you know, accomplish things and it might be in our advantage. And on both sides, there was repression of those stories. There's the McCarthyism lists and everything where it, so it's just like you need to preserve that idea of you being different than the others and we're seeing it now um, or we were seeing it a lot after September 11th with the terrorism versus organized state right so they became the other after September mm-hmm. 11th that's it we we dehumanize our enemies in a science fiction context they're already dehumanized yeah really what Star Trek does is humanize mm-hmm. the other is is what the the show does right. wants to do. Mm-hmm. So in this, we're going to bring the Klingons into the fold and make them a, an ally and humanize them with Worf on Next Gen. That's what they were doing. They were humanizing. Or I say humanizing, but even that, it's a form of colonialism because you're expecting them to adapt to what your way of life is. Well, I think Star Trek does the. They do. I don't know. I haven't. Yeah, seen, no. Star- I made it clear that yeah. I haven't seen many. I mean, Worf is on the bridge, mm-hmm. but he is fiercely culturally Star Trek is really about uh what are our differences and our differences make us stronger. Okay, fair enough. So it's not about homogenization, although, you know, sometimes you can take that as that and there have been yeah. stories where people in the, the show have criticized the Federation as mm-hmm. a homogenizing agent. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the message, the overall message is supposed to be let's all put our differences together right. and th- that's a more complete picture of the universe. Okay. So it's supposed to be a positive, although right. some stories have gone darker. Mm-hmm. Of course, this movie, Kirk is so freaking angry at the Klingons. Uh, you know, it's not... It's not ex- well, they killed his son, see? Yeah, no, he's got a personal problem with them. Yes. And that's why I think they, they brought in a, one line from the Cold War, famous line from the Cold War that they use in the movie, is uh, only Nixon could go to China to rationalize why, why Kirk and the Enterprise... Mm-hmm. Kirk, who hates the Klingons, yeah. should go be the peace emissary. Right. If he's going to China. Or then if... it's serious. Exactly. Then yeah. we know, you know, it's going to be real. You know, so again, it's a Cold War element that they mm-hmm. bring in. And they do bring in another one, the famous, uh, don't wait for the translation during the right. trial. It's also, that's from the Cuban <laughs> Missile Crisis, when uh, Adlai Stevenson said to Ambassador Zorin, mm-hmm. you know, in a heated exchange of the U.S. Yes. So they, they used... Those elements to remind you, oh, this is a Cold War narrative. Yeah. It's not a very subtle narrative. You get it? Yeah, I got it. I yeah. got it in the first two minutes. <laughs> yeah, Rurapente is a Siberian gulag. There, there you go. It's just very much so. It's even cold. Like, how is there snow on an asteroid? Is that a thing? I, who knows? <laughs> it's got an atmosphere. It seems to have an atmosphere. I guess. They say asteroid, maybe planetoid. Nah, okay. Maybe it's a little planet. <laughs> A tiny planet. Maybe they've got like generators on there to generate snow. I would say I would have said like an atmosphere and a gravity or something. Right. Okay. Increased gravity because if they're on an asteroid, they should be bouncing around mm-hmm. in, the, in the caves, but they aren't. So I'm not questioning that kind of stuff on a space opera. Okay. Uh, but it's all supposed to remind you of yeah the Soviet Union. Yeah, and it does. If you go to the gulag, you're most likely dying in the gulag. Right. It's how to kill people without killing them outright. So how does all this 
the movie doesn't tell you what happens later necessarily, but we do see the conference. We do yes. see the accords. We do hear the speeches. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gorbachev, Gorkon, is replaced by his daughter, who mm-hmm. has the same dream. Um, so that didn't happen in our history, of course. But no. uh, how does that seem to play out to you? Like, I wonder how much of it in the movie is meant to be for show. Because they didn't have a choice. You know, so they had to play nice mm. now because they were not able to defend themselves in a military capacity. Just like the Soviet Union wasn't able to continue an arms race or continue to be isolationist because they ruined themselves. I don't know enough about like the, or I'm not versed enough in exactly what happened specifically with the Soviet Union, but I think they didn't have much power. Even the entity of the Soviet Union, the fact that they dissolved that and gave sovereignty to the peripheral states again, I see it as a step further than we see the Klingons. Right, the Klingons yeah. seem to be a pretty homogenous yes, culture. Yes, they're still kind of feared. I mean, they remain an empire mm-hmm. post yeah. this. And uh, I think the most we've seen them as a balkanized mm-hmm. sort of people are is in like the recent show Discovery, where right. it's all before Kirk and all that. This is the war. Yes. It's the actual war. There we see that they are not unified. They unify for this war, but they've all got like different ships and different mm-hmm. uh, different tribal tattoos, and they, all, they seem to have different cultures. Right. So the original Klingons are very varied, mm-hmm. but then by even this point, they're yeah. all kind of the same. Or yeah. we only see the alpha mm-hmm. culture. Maybe. And I think that they're still seen as a threat, whereas Russia is perhaps not seen enough as a threat. We're starting to see it as a threat more now because of, you know, international hacking and stuff, which is... They're invading differently. Which is what why I asked you about who are the enemies after the Klingons. Right. And I, I gave you a partial answer Yes. Uh, last night. In reality, Next Gen tried to develop two different enemies yep. that didn't exist before because we still had the Romulans who were now the new Cold War. Right. But... There were there were the Ferengi, which didn't really work out as villains. Mm-hmm. And the Ferengi were super capitalists. Okay. And then there's the Borg, who are mm-hmm. the most famously associated with Next Gen. And the Borg are assimilators. Right. It's technology, mechanization, everybody's mm-hmm. the same. Everybody's right. a drone. Everybody has the same thought. So those are the two threats right. to the Federation in, in Next Generation. So mm-hmm. even... Even in this movie, they were already on the map let's right. say, in Next Gen. Because the, the Borg threat, to me, resonates a lot with what we're seeing now, which is um, fights over fake... Or, I hate using fake news because... It was it, also co-opted, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I just I hate the word and I hate that it's become a thing, but falsified news I'm okay with. Or misinformation. So mm-hmm. the, the, the it's interesting because years ago I was in a class and our, our um, professor said that now that we've done conquering territories, the next frontier is conquering our brains through the Internet of Things. So it's just like to see that the battleground is now in individual minds. I find that interesting to make that link and see that perhaps... The Borg are are the Russians. Or, I mean, any nation that... that... They're not the only ones. There's actually been reports in the news that Iran had uh, incidents in Canadian politics recently, but the the Russians are probably the best right now at internet control. It's a fascinating subject. And actually, Finland is being really good at preventing the spread of falsified information through uh, 
education and a very strong national identity. So I thought that was interesting. Scandinavian countries are maybe the closest to the Federation ideal in a way. Right. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, an interesting link that, of course, was not... No. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't do it on purpose, but we can look at mm-hmm. it now and say, oh, the, the way the writers set up these powers is playing out today in, mm-hmm. in, in a way. Yeah. And even the Ferengi and super capitalism is a huge threat. Right. Uh, that is in our midst and, mm-hmm. you know, is destroying the world. So uh, Next Gen had the, you know, their fingers on the pulse yeah. <laughs> as far as what the next threat were going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's also, I mean, the Soviet Union wasn't dead already when they premiered the Ferengi, but post-Soviet oh, bloc, okay, yeah. Yeah, post-Soviet bloc, suddenly you've got Russian business. You've got Ru- the oligarchs and all of that stuff rises so it's like we replace one enemy with another, and the other is no longer some sort of Cold War enemy, and now it's become a, a business enemy or a mm-hmm. financial enemy. Yeah. So it all kind of connects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, in a way, the Kittimer Accords in the, in the movie and in the show uh, were meant to be a, a dismantling of the arms race. Right. Which we did see. Mm-hmm. So in this movie... We see the arms race clearly in yep. Chang's Bird of Prey, where all the cloaking ships have always been meant to be submarines. Uh, we're doing naval battles. The ships are boats, and the right. the cloaking vessels are supposed to be uh, submarines. Uh, and this one has a capability that others don't. Yeah, so the others can't shoot when they're cloaked? Right. That's a design flaw. Well, it, and surprise, it took so long to fix it. <laughs> well, and even then, I mean, it, it's not fixed later. Right. It, this was like a prototype. And, and, and even they, they detect it. They find a right. way to detect it. So in other words, it's the arms race. We've got a new weapon. Yeah. We've got the new counter move. We'll mm-hmm. have to find a new counter move. So in the future, uh, this is so detectable that right. it's not worth it. So we were seeing... A part of the problem that the Klingons have is that they spent so much money on their military, you know, they, they can't do their own relief efforts when bad things happen. So, mm-hmm. again, it's it's a parallel to our world. Yeah, for sure. Any other thoughts that uh, came to you while watching this film? <laughs> Honestly, it, it, and it's not a, it's, it has nothing to do with political science, but okay. like, one of my main realization was how they're very selective with what's futuristic. Because certain things can't be too futuristic because we need them for plot points. Like the PA system. Like, I thought the PA system... What do you mean the PA system? The PA system is ridiculous. Really? They'd have a PA system? We don't even have PA systems. We have texts. Oh, well. That that was not... We didn't even know about that stuff. I know, but it it just strikes me as a ridiculous... Like, everything else is futuristic, but you have a PA system? Really? Like, it, to me, it's... But in Next Gen, they tab their badge. It's like cell phones, but, I mean, no, nobody does with, with the, does it with text. I mean, the computer surfaces aren't the same. They didn't know in I, I know, it's just... It... The flip chart? I, I know the flip chart bugs some people. Yes, the flip chart also bugged me. <laughs> but it's on paper. If it's on a computer, that secret plan I could always be hacked. I suppose that's true. I suppose you have a point. <laughs> I'm, good, I'm like... good at those points. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just... I don't know. It, it was. It just kind of. I felt like Kirk speaking out loud about his son. I was like, "Dude, why are you doing this?" Well, like, he's I, recording in the. I know. Recording but his log. Why would you? Why would you? Like, it's just. It's. He's a podcaster, not a blogger. <laughs> You're listening to the Captain Kirk podcast. <laughs> I can never forgive them, but that's my son. But it, it just. It just seems like it's a. It's something that you would. Say to yourself, not to your computer. It's also a drama. Yes. <laughs> but it's, 
I just felt like some of the plot elements were way too transparent. I was like, oh, that's why they have a stupid PA system. <laughs> I'm really upset about the PA system. <laughs> but they use it to catch, like, the... Yeah, but that log is falsified. If, uh, if you watch a movie often enough, you realize that the tape that they played the trial is not the, the same take as when you hear Kirk say it. It's, the words are in the same order. Is that so, on purpose, or is that like a production nah, mistake? it's a production mistake. Yeah. Okay. But, I mean, the clue, obviously, is that Valeris is spying. So, yeah, you yeah. know, it's got there's spies and saboteurs oh, yeah. and all of that stuff. I suppose. Yes. It's a bit of the Cold War just scrunched up. Yeah, beginning, there's a lot Beginning of to it. end. Yeah. Just to give you that feeling. Well, all right. Uh, it is, um, what are you working on right now? <laughs> I, <laughs> they can listen to my melodious voice. Melodious? 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 Melo- anyways, my pretty voice. <laughs> I don't think I have a pretty voice at all. <laughs> um, on uh, Ohatmu, as you mentioned at the beginning, we're uh, just about getting ready to tap into the letter H, so I'm uh, excited. Oh, nice. <laughs> now I sound, I sound like Shotgun. Um, and in our future, there should be a panel-by-panel panel There should be. I discussion. can't wait to see how that discussion turns out. Well, you won't be able to see it because it's an audio medium. <laughs> I feel like you've been trying to convince us of this for years now. <laughs> I know. Thank you for spending this hour with me. Sure. Guess, yeah. And uh, and um, I'll let you get, go back to the Federation Council Chambers, where you're needed as mediator, probably. Uh, I'll stick around for Subspace Transmissions, which is Star Trek News, and your feedback on the Villain Bracket Show. Oh. Stick around. <laughs> so which is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Ant-Man. I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel? What about uh, White Tiger? What about uh, White Tiger? Uh, Doc Samson. Who's Star Fox. That's a video game. The girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Incoming subspace transmissions. In Star Trek news, after months of saying the new Picard show wouldn't be called simply Picard, a teaser trailer dropped that revealed it would be called Picard. After all, the teaser reveals very little except that Picard made it to the rank of Admiral, apparently led a fleet to provide relief efforts for Romulus, and is now working at the family winery. 20 years later, the production has also released the designs for the show's Starfleet uniforms. It's a rather ordinary modification of the Voyager look. It's so ordinary, in fact, that many fans and observers believe Starfleet likely won't feature strongly. Now, while the show is set to air exclusively on CBS All Access in the United States uh, and on Space in Canada, it will be available on Amazon Prime in other countries. The long-awaited Deep Space Nine documentary, What We Left Behind, got a two-day, extended from the original one, theatrical release, uh, which, while advertised in theaters near me, did not actually come to my area. European listeners still have a shot, as it uh, should be on their theater screens June 26th. For the rest of us, the DVD and Blu-ray will be released on August 6th through Amazon and Shout Factory, the latter a limited Blu-ray special edition, only 1,500 copies, that includes a special roundtable discussion about the making of the documentary and an extra featurette about its music. 
Both are in addition to the normal releases bonus features, uh, which are an intro from Ira, Bear, and the gang, a brief history of Deep Space Nine, what we left out, deleted scenes uh, with over 45 minutes of new material, behind the scenes at the Variety photo shoot, an HD remastered discussion, a roundtable chat with the filmmakers, something called More from the Fans, and the theatrical trailer. Now, the film's backers get the Indiegogo release, which also has additional bonus features, the aforementioned featurette about the doc's music, plus Indiegogo campaign videos, and a technical trivia subtitle track. Now, your comments about the last episode's Villain Bracket. Abel Padilla wonders if the NBC execs from the classic SNL skit were considered among the villains. Well, no, but it's a great idea for a dishonorable mention. Mike Lacroix was thankful for the Gimme That Star Trek t-shirt he won, and just after winning a less tangible Yellow Dot Award from the Who's Who podcast as well. Talented guy. Said t-shirt doubles as a Give Me Those Star Wars or Find Your Joy shirt, and it's available from the Tee Public shop accessible through fireandwaterpodcast.com by clicking the Merch tab. James uh, Williams says, wonderful episode. I love these bracket shows. All five of you did a great job uh, and offered really thought-provoking insight into characters. I'd never heard Ryan on a podcast, Ryan Blake here, before, and now think he should be a judge on all future brackets. Robert Kelly says, a wonderfully fun show, even if you did come to the wrong conclusion. Corey picking Gary Mitchell over Khan in the first round rocks my view of him to its very core. Next up, Chris Franklin says, I still have teeth left, so I didn't gnash them as bad as the last time you did one of these. But I don't even know who Kai Wynn is, so I guess I'm not as qualified to complain. And I have a lot of love for Krooge myself and Star Trek 3, but if you follow the logic that Krooge kicked off the events of the rest of the TOS movie series, Minus 5, well, didn't Khan detonating the Genesis device and creating the planet uh, set Krooge on his course to get his ultimate weapon? Without Star Trek II and Khan's actions, there can be no three. So Khan still should have beat out Krooge, in my humble opinion, but I love both, so I'll let that one go, and I clearly need to watch more DS9. But all kidding aside, fun show. I know it's a joke among the FW group that I hate these things because Shag ruined me on that bracket show once, but I really did enjoy this episode very much. To which I would reply that I guess Carol Marcus is the evilest of all, if we, you know, if we go back to the Genesis device. David S. Gutierrez says, Whoa, this zigged and zagged and ended up a very thoughtful but horribly wrong place. I'd have gone Ducat all the way. He was the big bad of an entire series. But I get and respect Leyland's point of view as wrong-headed as it may be. I'm like David, I don't dislike the result, but if I'd done this alone, Ducat would have won it. Not only was he the Hitler of Deep Space Nine, he eventually was the Antichrist of Deep Space Nine. Maybe I should have fought harder for him. Gothos Mansion says, uh, Khan and the female Romulan commander from Enterprise Incident were my two favorites, so I knew they would eliminate each other early, if they even made it out of the first round. I am a bit surprised Khan didn't even make the final four, although I didn't expect him to win. I think he would have been too obvious of a choice. As far as my two picks being original series, I guess I'm still stuck in the Bronze Age. Wait, that's the wrong medium and decade. Oh, well. Yeah, Silver Age, Silver Age. Mark Baker-Wright says, Ultimately, this was a very entertaining episode, but I did find myself confused on the question of whether or not the panelists felt able to use whatever criteria they preferred to choose bracket winners, or if they felt they had to follow rules laid down by someone else. Several times, folks said something like, according to the rules, 
you set, uh, but you was unspecified. And if there were indeed such rules, I hadn't picked up on them at the beginning. Let me break in here, Mark. No rules from me. The rules were just based on the growing consensus within the group. Uh, you in the phrase could mean anyone who set rules for themselves. I think Ryan Blake was the big rule setter in his quest for the ultimate evil. And I think most participants were sort of referring to those. Mark continues, that said, he says, while folks certainly did use different criteria than I did, I was 100% thinking who was the better character rather than anything like who is more evil or who is the better villain. I felt that there were nearly always well-reasoned arguments behind each person's selections, and that's what I ultimately look for in this kind of face-off. Well done, all. Alan W. Wright says, This is the best bracket fight I've ever listened to. It wasn't the ending I expected, but it's hard to fault the logic. A pleasant and enjoyable twist that kept it interesting. I think DS9 clearly should be the winner in the best villains, best anti-heroes, best morally ambiguous characters, the best flawed heroes categories. Any odd choice, Hoshi over Georgiou, seem quirky and fun, and not total WTF, unlike... Riker over Picard. Just got back from what we left behind. I think you'll be very happy with it. The audience was extremely responsive, and we were all laughing at the great humor in it. So I can't wait for August 6th when when I can get my hands on it. Tim Price says, uh, finally, at the risk of being an armchair quarterback. It's interesting how many times Scrooge was defended for destroying the Enterprise. But not once was it mentioned that the Enterprise D was destroyed by the Dura sisters. I'm undecided if that alone would have moved them forward more in the bracket, but I would have liked more of a fight on their behalf. They're the Cruella de Vil and Ursula of TNG. Yeah, Tim, you know what happened? I think I'm so used to blaming Deanna Troy's piloting <laughs> for the destruction of the Enterprise, but no, really, the killing blow was the Duras sisters. I, I, maybe it all slipped our minds? Not many Generations fans, perhaps. Uh, Locutus, he, continue, he goes on to say, uh, I was out of college one year when Best of Both Worlds Part 1 aired. My friends and I talked about it a lot that summer. We even had a party to watch Part 2 as a group. So count me in among those that considered the mere existence of Locutus a big deal. Highly interesting and entertaining bracket fight. Here's hoping we're still friends. Well done, Siskoid. And well done to my panelists. You know, every time we do a bracket fight, it's interesting. I think it it brings in listeners. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure it's it's a fun structure and concept in principle, but it creates a lot of dissatisfaction among listeners because everyone's got their favorite, and if they were on the panel, they would have defended that person. And even if you're on the panel, you can get voted, you know, down. So these are mini controversies that really we shouldn't stay mad about. But honestly, I think we got the formula right this time. Either in the way the matchups were set up at the beginning or the way they were discussed. A good variety of opinion among the panelists. So I'm confident about next year's, which hasn't actually been decided yet. It's probably going to be Alien Cultures. So start to pick your favorites in your mind. But um, I mean, that's months and months away. As usual at this point, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter where we are FW Podcasts. Until the next episode then, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly.